west of Cincinnati. After a short inventory by me, I found the contents of the car to be as follows. Emily, Tony, two large suitcases of clothes, a whole dollar clothes, one backpack, a tray of brownies made by Emily's mum, some wintergreen chewing gum, two 32-ounce bottles of lime Gatorade, 75 compact discs, one red cricket ball stolen from a work colleague, maps, charts and directions for the journey ahead, sunglasses, spare sunglasses, a compass, a cooler full of full sugar coke, five jackets, three baseball caps and a box of light Cheez-Its along with another box of assorted granola bars. This list, I assured Emily, was culled from reading a number of survival adventure books as a youth, and we would have everything we'd need for the journey ahead. Plus, we could stop at a gas station for anything else we'd forgotten. We pulled out Emily's driveway on a bleak, unremarkable late winter afternoon. The sky very much beginning to bruise. So, what do you think of the trip so far, I chimed, thinking myself a real comedian. Emily said nothing. Within ten minutes, we'd left Ohio and entered into the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where education pays, and a snowstorm. Ten minutes later, we'd missed our exit south on I-75, and thirty minutes after that, we realised we've missed our exit. This sort of start didn't augur well for the trip. Our destination for tonight was Murray in southwest Kentucky, an old haunt of Emily's. For purposes of morale, we thought it a good idea to spend the first night in a somewhat more familiar surroundings than we'd expect for the remainder of the trip. Before that, though, we had somewhere else to go. Southwest of Louisville, we pull off the interstate and onto some badly paved local roads through the forest and lumpy hills. I was looking for the safest place in the country, Fort Knox. I knew it was around here somewhere, and it turned up about half an hour later, astride a small hill. I recognised it from the miniature Fort Knox that Auric Goldfinger showed off to his mob buddies before gassing them. Actually, its proper name is the US Gold Bullion Depository. Fort Knox is the military post where the building is situated, and supposedly all the gold belonging to the government in America is in this building. However, others will tell you that they stopped storing gold there a long time ago. We were greeted at Bullion Boulevard by a long, snaky line of traffic, multiple armed guards all dressed in fatigues, and a big sign in a large, formal black font saying, Photo ID must be shown. It came to our turn at the front of the line. I congratulated myself for thinking of visiting this place. How you doing? You got your licence there? Asked the guard, an uninterested large black guy with a gun slung over one shoulder. He checked Emily's, looked at her, and handed it back. I gave him my laminated UK license. He narrowed his eyes and stared at it for what seemed like ages, mouthing the words printed on it. Scotland, he asked, looking at me as if it lay somewhere in the orbit of Mars. I need to see your passport. What for, I asked. That stalled him a little. He looked at my license again, a little more closely. Uh, I need to see your passport. Well, I don't have it with me. All your sign asks for is identification to prove that I am someone. This license, I said, pointing to it still in his hand, proves I'm me. I kind of had him there. (laughs) Nevertheless, he wasn't going to budge. Soldiers are taught not to question authority, but to obey it. I was told to leave, and in no uncertain terms not to return, 
while the guard and his buddy stopped the traffic in both directions for me. As I spun the car around, kind of to show my displeasure, I turned it real quick, making a screeching noise with the tyres. A soldier of about 19 in a group of his peers watching me from nearby absolutely exploded. Slow down, he screamed as he ran over to me. I was only doing about 12 miles an hour and had enough of authority for today, especially from 19-year-old PFCs. However, I was acutely aware of the futility of arguing with authority in America. I let it go, smiling and nodding to the team combatant while slowing down to about 8 miles an hour. As we left, I stopped by the roadside opposite, got out of the car and trudged over to the edge of the field that contained the outpost. In the cooling late afternoon breeze, I stood and stared and wondered how far I'd get if I started running towards the place with the intent of scrambling over the barbed wire fence before they gunned me down. Probably not far, especially when they found out it was me. Checking the map, we headed south on the lengthily named Wendell H. Ford Western Kentucky Parkway. The nearer we got to Tennessee, the state immediately south of Kentucky, the worse condition the roads got. A sign said, Murray, 23 miles. Then, two minutes later, another said, Murray, 15 miles. If these signs were correct, I had no reason to disbelieve them. I had been driving at about 240 miles per hour, and the cops didn't get me. I was lucky, according to Emily. Kentucky police are notorious bastards, especially to people driving vehicles with Ohio plates. Arriving in the wrong kind of light, we took a room at a small day's inn, dumped our bags and drove about Murray before it got completely dark. Emily had stayed here during a three-month internship at the local hospital a couple of years back and had hated every minute of her time there. Murray was in a dry county, a couple of miles from the Tennessee state line. Everyone was married and drank. To top it all, the house that Emily stayed in was supposedly haunted and was the reason the owner, an old lady, stayed next door while Emily had the huge, large house to herself. Thing was, reminisced Emily, when pressed by me to elaborate, that when the old dear showed me around, she missed out one of the bedrooms completely, as if there wasn't even a door there. I never used it, and I only went in there a couple of times, but it seemed just to be a normal bedroom. However, one day I found a chair in there, blocking the hallway to the ensuite bathroom. No one had been in there but me, and I hadn't moved it. What's more, when my family came to stay, my brother was convinced he saw someone staring from a window, and my mum heard some guy talking into her ear while she dozed on the couch one night. They wisely kept all that quiet until I'd returned home. We drove over to the neighbourhood Emily had lived in and parked up. From the road, the house looked normal enough, if a little dirty, with crud-covered screens on most of the windows making it difficult to see anything through them, let alone a gruesome face or a sneaky spectre. Nevertheless, I was pleased we'd chosen a motel for the night. In the daylight that remained, we drove around the burbs as big as Murray was. Not having the experience that Emily had, it didn't seem too bad a place, until some blonde-haired kid flipped me the bird when we drove past him and his friends. After dark, we ate in a lonely Mexican restaurant, the only customers for the ten minutes it took us to swallow our food then drove five miles over the state line into Tennessee, our third state of the day if you're counting, for a couple of beers at the first bar we saw. The following morning, after a complimentary breakfast of coffee and bland donuts, supervised by a hawk-like hotel manager, we took a more leisurely look around downtown Murray. It was your typical American small town of yesteryear. 
a pleasant square with county courthouse in the middle and shops surrounding the perimeter. Places like Rudy's Good Home Cooking, Frame Village and New Life Christian Bookstore. For good measure, there was also a Confederate Civil War memorial. It was a sunny morning, however, being early March, a pronounced chill still hung in the air. So I scribbled some notes on a scrap of hotel writing paper and jumped into the car, eager to keep moving, keep the dream alive, keeping the trip on track. Back on the road, we took the 641 south towards Tennessee, passing the border town of Hazel, where I misread the sign Hazel 2 because of the font and spacing of the letters on the sign, thinking there were two towns, Hazel and Hazel 2 on the other side of the state line, which amused Emily almost to the end of the trip. To sample the full flavour of southern culture, we switched on the radio and caught the end of Baptist Hour. Then an old lady reading entirely local news, including a section on local websites, where she would pronounce it like slash.com. Down here in the Bible Belt, it was no surprise to find a great number of churches on the way, most with ingenious throwaway one-liners on their notice boards. Exposure to the sun avoids burning, and when you sling mud you lose ground, or send God a knee mail. Upon entering Tennessee, we headed due west. An hour later found us in Adams, a small rural town north of Nashville, formerly known as Red River. Adams is known as the home of the Bell Witch, a poltergeist-like entity that plagued the Bell family in the early years of the 19th century. According to legend, the Bell Witch still manifested itself around the area and, in particular, in and around a cave on what had been the Bell property. The movie The Blair Witch Project was said to have been inspired by the lore of the Bell Witch. We pulled off the highway, followed the handmade signs pointing towards the cave. A dirt track led to a small grass parking area in front of an unpainted wooden hut. A large dopey looking guy in bib overalls was shuffling about aimlessly as we walked up. Before we had a chance to say anything, he launched into a rambling, stuttering monologue concerning the length of the time we'd have to wait before we could tour the cave. As he spoke, I noticed a handwritten sign to his right saying, Cave Tour, $7. Cabin Tour, $5. Only me and the wife here right now. My daughter should be here, but she ain't yet, he said. Seemingly to me, but said, staring off into the far distance. You'll have to wait until my wife returns from the cave, or my daughter turns up. Why don't you tour the cabin as well? It's well worth it, he added, scratching his stubbly chin. From years of touring stately homes, castles, caves and palaces as a kid, I knew this meant that it patently wasn't worth it. I also balked at paying another ten bucks for what would, I'm sure, have been a disappointment. I peered around the back of the hut to see a modest-looking but newly-built log cabin. Politely as I could, I declined his offer with a shake of my head as he walked off towards another couple who just arrived to give him his Tennessee hard sell. His name was Walter Clement, and he ran the franchise along with his wife Dawn and their daughter Cindy. Dawn returned from an earlier cave tour after about 20 minutes and proceeded to give the waiting ensemble a brief rundown of the history of the site that included a swiftly presented display of supposed supernatural photographs taken in the area. After another 20 minutes of hanging about waiting for us to take the combo tour, we signed a disclaimer, then Don ordered Cindy, who in the meantime had turned up, to take Emily and I down into the cave, along with another couple, who'd also passed on the cabin tour. They were Rick and Wendy, a couple of 40-something bikers from some other part of the state. 
Cindy was about 22, but looked and acted a lot younger. On the slippery path down to the cave, Rick, Rick asked her if she'd personally experienced anything strange. Plenty of times. I could write a book about the stuff I've seen, except I don't write too good, so it'd be like one long sentence. Cindy stopped us at the entrance to the cave and was about to start her spiel when Rick jumped in. Man, this is great, isn't it? This is great, just, just the five of us, he said, looking at each of us in turn. I can't believe we're here. I've wanted to visit this place for so long, and now we're actually here. Once Rick had finished, Cindy elaborated on the history of the Bell Witch, gave us a list of do's and don'ts once inside, then turned away to unlock the gate guarding the cave entrance. The cave is actually part of a series of caves that run for miles underground. Kentucky and Tennessee are riddled with them. Although lit, the cave was still fairly murky with a stream of cold, clear water of varying depths running down the centre of it. While Rick poked about in one corner armed with a disposable camera, Cindy gave us a rundown of strange happenings in these parts. Unfortunately, her tardiness earlier was, I'm quite sure, due to her being in bed, and this was exactly where she obviously still wanted to be. Almost every sentence was fractured by a long and very obvious yawn. After about the sixth time, Rick, who I took to be a sort of amateur enthusiast when it came to the paranormal, and the Bell Witch in particular, intervened and ended up completing the majority of Cindy's sentences for the benefit of the rest of us, Cindy included. We ventured further back until the cave opened up and then narrowed to a point where we could progress no further without getting very wet and no doubt sore. After making sure I took a slew of photographs, once Rick told me paranormal photographs are in heavy demand, we headed back, making sure I covered the back of my white t-shirt in a primordial-looking orange slime on the way. If there was anything out of the ordinary down in that cave, none of us saw it that day. It was just a damp, dingy cave like all the rest you've ever been in throughout your life. It had started to rain by the time we reached the hut, where Walter was still pacing about. Emily asked him if we could look at the folder of photographs again. Well, no, he puffed, looking suddenly unsettled. We're about to close up on account of the rain. This was obviously a lie, as his wife was still down the cave with another tour group, and would be so for 20 minutes. Okay, well, can I still buy a t-shirt and a couple of hats? Sure, sure you can, come on in. Nah, forget it, we said, almost in unison, as we turned and walked towards the car. We headed for Nashville, for no other reason than it was close by. Although neither of us liked country and western music, we thought there might be something of interest located therein. Downtown Nashville was a strange melange of smelly bars, derelict buildings overgrown with vegetation, trendy restaurants and tourist shops selling t-shirts adorned with confederate flags, all clinging to the side of a very murky Cumberland River. It was still pissing rain. We didn't hang about. On the way out of town I spied a sign for the Bell Mead Plantation. I'd intended to visit a plantation at some point on the trip, and what better than a plantation of the true southern variety? Not sure if we'd pass the plantation later on. We headed towards Bellmead. After a slow drive through a busy arterial road, we found ourselves negotiating a rickety-looking single-lane bridge in order to park up by the side of the Bellmead house. Our luck was in. We were able to join up with a tour group immediately. A bunch of people, about 15 of them, led by a lady of about 30, clad exclusively in black. In the humidity of the day, I was surprised she hadn't yet melted. Our fellow visitors, I noted, comprised the usual dismal mix of old people, annoying kids and the outright odd. 
according to our guide, the Hardings, owners of the Bellmead plantation way back when, had made most of their riches from breeding thoroughbred horses. This was about as much as I could understand from the first half of the tour on account of the annoying old lady and her daughter next to me talking throughout and the peculiar accent of our guide. Horse raising would come out as horse racing. For the first 20 minutes, I assumed she was talking about some joint equine arable farm venture. Trooping inside the Greek Revival building, the walls were full of famous horses that had originated from Belmede. Everyone from Iroquois to Seabiscuit was here. One horse, known as Bonnie Scotland, seemed to be the ancestor of just about every thoroughbred horse that has since existed in the States. Alas, like the story of many families who once owned stately homes or plantations, the Hardings was no different. The usual tale of squandered inheritances, foolish ventures and a gradual decline into bankruptcy, forcing the family to sell their estate. As often happens, subsequent buyers let the place go until the house lay in ruins, until the 1950s, after which the Association for the Preservation of Tennessee Antiquities purchased it and renovated to the standard we find the place in today. Shuffling through the main hall, our group entered a number of different rooms, passing a hollowed-out hippo foot I was pleased to see, until ending up back at the front door, where we were shown the bullet holes from a Civil War skirmish that apparently took place where the front lawn is today. After the guided tour, we were allowed to wander around the grounds, but not the house, unaccompanied, should we so wish. I took a John over to the Harding Crypt, then on to a reproduction slave home. I couldn't decide which of the two places was least appealing as a residence. Leaving the Ville, Emily drove us through a series of small towns with big names like Paris and Milan. Others like Keeling or Mason were just your regular 30-second towns. I insisted we turn back into Mason, though, after spotting Bozo's Hot Pit Barbecue Restaurant. I couldn't pass up this slice of southern living. Plus, we were hungry. Emily and I both ordered the pig, a bread roll stuffed with succulent pork, and damn good it was too. We were the only non-locals there, but nobody stared. My fears about rural Tennessee were unfounded. On the way out, as I waited for Emily to use the bathroom, I spotted a picture of the original owners by the door. The caption reading, Picture of Iris Williams, Bozo Williams and Bubba Joe. Cute. We were headed for Memphis in southwestern Tennessee, where we'd be joining up with the route taken by the Sex Pistols during their abortive tour of the USA in 1978. The Pistols were the original English punk rock band, and they more or less redefined popular music in the latter half of the 70s, sweeping away the cobwebs of disco and bringing a guitar-driven, stripped-down basic feel back to music. Their Svengali-like manager Malcolm McLaren masterminded a tour of mainly just southern states with a finale in California. Of the many problems that they faced, none was greater than their self-destructive bass player Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. John Beverly, a.k.a. Sid Vicious. Sid was a heroin addict, could barely string two chords together on his guitar, and refused to wash during the 12 days they were in America. He would frequently disappear after gigs looking for a hit, and would have to be found before the band could continue with the tour. America neither wanted nor welcomed the Pistols, and their time in the States was really the death knell for them, as they broke up at the end of the last gig, Winterland in San Francisco, 
Sid moved to New York with his girlfriend Nancy Spongen, eventually murdering her in a drug-induced argument during their stay in the Chelsea Hotel. While out on bail from the dreaded Rikers Island jail, he overdosed on methadone, given to him by his mother, and he died in his sleep. That was February 2nd, Groundhog Day, 1979. Sid was 21. I turned 8 the following day. Obviously, being a bit of a fan, I had wanted to see the theatre where the Pistols had played, but this being America, it wasn't going to be easy. Attempting to find an ordinary, non-historic building used in the 1970s in the United States can be fairly difficult. There's a good chance it will no longer be there. I would have been thwarted in Atlanta, and now an office supplies warehouse. The Longhorn Ballroom in Texas was too far off, and a new winterland in San Francisco was no longer standing. Alas, I was to have no better luck in Memphis. The Tallison Ballroom was now apparently a Taco Bell restaurant. We stopped at a Taco Bell that I'd picked at random, near to where I thought the heart of Memphis was, and as we sat with our tacos, I imagined Johnny Rotten taunting the crowd over by the counter. Paul Cook banging the skins near the disabled toilets, and Sid and Steve Jones on either side of the soda dispensers. Cheap holiday and other people's misery, chanted Rotten. You've been talking to yourself for the last five minutes, do you know that? Are you okay? asked Emily. Fine, I said. I'm enjoying my holiday in the sun. I'd found it hard to warm to Memphis, possibly because of the areas we drove through. At some point after passing a Jeff Davis monument in a scabby park full of people lying around, a large pyramid and Beale Street looking for Graceland, we found it. I missed it on the first reconnoitre and only caught a glimpse of it during the second pass. One minute you're passing muffler shops and auto repair places, and the next thing there it is, smaller in real life than you expect. The boundary walls covered in like asshole sentiments to the king. Driving along the strip approaching Graceland, most retail outlets with even a tangential connection have Elvis's name or face on them. They couldn't afford not to. They were Elvi all over. Everywhere you looked you saw his face. The 50s or 60s version with a quiff and handsome grin. Emily had phoned ahead and pre-booked her accommodation, a Motel 6 in West Memphis, Arkansas, across the murky Mississippi. It had an ominous address being located on the South Service Strip, a small road running parallel to a hysterically busy arterial road joining Memphis to West Memphis. When it comes to chain motels, Motel 6s are the padlock to oblivion at the bottom. Nevertheless, barring our pizza delivery guy being attacked by next door's chihuahua, it was an uneventful evening in West Memphis.